Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to FYI. I'm Simon, ARK's genomics analyst focused on life science tools and diagnostics. Today, we're going to be talking to Ivan Liachko. He's the co-founder and CEO of Phase Genomics and a developer of ultra-long-range sequencing technology, which we're going to talk a little bit about more today. But Ivan, thanks for coming. I don't know if I ever told you this actually, but the week that I started at ARC back in fall of 2018, I think one of the first press releases that I read was actually about phase. I don't know if you'll remember this. I think you guys put this note out. I think at the time it was the most contiguous, most complete assembly of a genome. I think it was human genome 733. It was a Puerto Rican deployed genome. I wonder if you remember that and if you can Talk a little bit about your memories of that and the significance of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The story of phase is really, well, maybe not even the phase. The story of genetics and genomics, if you think about it, really what we're doing is essentially extracting information out of biological systems. In sort of a high-level way, you can think most of life is transmitting information. And what genetics and genomics tries to do is extract that information and put it together and to do useful things with it. And so what FaZe really has been doing is developing tools for capturing new kinds of information that they can be leveraged to improve other genetic efforts. So the Puerto Rican genome, for example. So at that point, that was actually a really cool collaboration with PacBio. And what we did in that was not only assemble the highest contiguity genome, which at that point we've been doing quite a bit for a couple of years already, but we also were able to phase it into haplotypes. So this is maybe jumping a little bit ahead sort of on the progression of the technology, but that was the ability to create a platinum quality genome for, in that case it was a human, but it could be for anything, without having to have parental data. So you just sequence somebody, and you can not just assemble full chromosomes, you can also separate the mom chromosomes from the dad chromosomes. It's still a problem, it's still very difficult to do. At that point in time, it was way harder. And so just being able to do that without having to know what the parental haplotypes are and just do it on a complete end-to-end chromosome scale. That was a cool milestone. Again, a really nice collaboration with PacBio. We co-developed the software called Falcon Phase, which I think Falcon isn't the main assembling tool anymore, but that was sort of the thing at the time. I think most people who've been following our research for the past year or so will remember that in our big ideas, kind of our ARC's annual publication, I think a year ago, we talked a little bit about the fact that the Human Genome Project wasn't actually finished in 2003 and that we've been continuing to kind of build it more faithfully in a way that represents that body of genetic information like you've been alluding to. And so I think a good place to maybe start is a lot of people, I think, Maybe they learned about it in high school, or maybe they remember it from a test or something, but this idea that 
all of our chromosome pairs are kind of packaged into these little X shapes. And how does someone who knows sort of nothing about this go from that sort of mind's eye image to what you're talking about? Because when I think about ultra long range sequencing, what exactly does that mean? I think about the structural orientation of like what these molecules sort of look like inside of cells. Could you maybe speak to that? So maybe just even to back up to maybe some people in the audience don't even kind of know what the technology is, but the idea behind ultra long range sequencing, not to be confused with ultra long read sequencing, this is not like a new kind of nanopore or a new kind of pack biosequencing. What this does is it captures a different type of genetic information. It captures the distance between sequences. It essentially tells you how far away and how close different parts of the genome are to each other. And that's when I was talking sort of about capturing information, that kind of thing. When you have this really orthogonal data type, you can solve all sorts of problems that are borderline impossible to solve with other methods. And so when we started phase, we started phase in 2015. And at that time, to be able to really assemble the genome fully, it was virtually impossible. You could sequence anything. There was lots of sequencing going on. But to actually assemble chromosomes was super duper hard. And we came up with this tech that allowed us to do it in a way that was pretty simple. And so we said, hey, we saw how it was working. And I literally remember going to Jay Shanduri, who was the faculty at the time. This was during my postdoc days. And saying, like, <laughs> like, look at this. Look at what's happening here. This solves a huge problem for people. We have to, like, do something. We have to commercialize this. That was actually the motivation. And so the progression of it has been, and where we see genomics and genome assembly in general has gone is, in those days, having a genome that was assembled into a full chromosome was impossible. And I remember three, four years later at one of the conferences, one of the big genome conferences, somebody at the talk basically said, okay, we assembled this genome with PacBio, and then we used Phase genomics, the scaffolded, but you guys have heard this a million times before, so I'm just going to move on to biology. And that was a huge milestone because until then, the assembly of a genome would be an entire talk. And at that point, basically, people were like, yeah, everybody just does it this way. And now we're at a place where it's hard to publish a genome that's not fully assembled. And so it's really progressed alongside with the long read technologies to kind of really transformed what genomics is doing now. So the idea is, again, to go back to your original question, because I sort of took a turn, the idea is that when we think of a genome, some people think of it as abstractly as just like a bunch of letters, nucleotides, ATCGs. But when you actually see it, what is it? What is a genome like if you were to look at it? It's a bunch of super long molecules that are made of lots of little tiny molecules, those are your letters, and so it's just like a super long stretch of DNA, and there are several of them, they're chromosomes, and they're all squished together into a ball inside of a cell, into a nucleus. And that ball, how it's structured, has a lot of biological information in it, because there are certain parts of the DNA that are close to the others in order to be co-regulated. Some parts are looped out so that they're away from everything else. It's not just like a random ball of noodles. There's a lot of biology in there, but the biology is not hard-coded. It's dynamic because it's stuff that's like looping and moving around. I see what you're saying. And so it's not like you changed a letter from A to C at this position and it's just like that. 
things can move around, things can spread or come close. And so this technology captures how everything is organized, what's far, what's close. But if you have that information, what's far and what's close, you can do lots of other things with it that are super valuable beyond what the original intent of the technology was. So I remember, and maybe tell me if this is a poorly fitting analogy, but if you think about a bunch of dictionaries on a bookshelf and the task was to take a book off the shelf and read from it. That's like an enzyme going and peeling off a coding section of a gene and going and running that program. Okay. If I were to take the book and move it to the top part of the shelf, I haven't changed the writing. I haven't changed the information content of the wall, but I've moved this object in 3D space such that it's inaccessible. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Where like, it's the same information, but the little hairball, I mean, I think of it like a tumbleweed or something. It's like a mess, but there's information in it. Yeah, there's information, but imagine there are some parts of the DNA, like genes and stuff, that are next to some other genes. There's chemistry that affects them, proteins, all sorts of other molecular biology sort of enzymes and things that are working on them. And if things are closer, certain chemistry will happen. If you put them far away, maybe the enzymes that are affecting this part of the genome are not going to be able to find this part of the genome now. And that's happening on a genome-wide scale in ways that is super complex. And it's always changing. During differentiation, cells will change their three-dimensional structure of their genome, even though the sequence of the genome doesn't change at all. Your genome more or less stays the same, minus mutations along the way, but the three-dimensional structure is very dynamic. Things move around inside the cell. But that was kind of what this technology was developed originally to look at, at this three-dimensional folding of the genome. But what we did is we took it and we repurposed it to something completely different that, in my opinion, is actually cooler and way more powerful and kind of practically useful. And it's actually simple. What I really like about it is that it's a simplification of a complex problem. When you're looking at, again, remember, you're essentially saying part of the genome A and part of the genome B are close together or they're far away. And you just have that for every combination of sort of, of loci of parts in the genome. And so you can make this three-dimensional model of the whole thing. But... There's also this property that sequences that are close together in the three-dimensional space are more likely to be closer together on the two-dimensional space. So again, let's say you have a piece of spaghetti and it's just kind of floating around and it gets squished into a ball. If you're close together on that string, on that spaghetti, you're more likely to be in physical proximity. And if you're on opposite end you're less likely to be. And so if you know how far away and how close things are in a three-dimensional space, you can translate that to how far and close they are on the two-dimensional space, on the chromosome. And that solves a massive problem in the genome assembly space because it tells you how far and how close everything is with infinite range. The reason why we call it ultra long range contiguity is you can literally, you can figure out which pairs of sequences are close or far to each other. Basically, doesn't matter how far they are, like at the opposite ends of a whole chromosome. And it's essentially a high resolution genetic map that you can generate without having to do complex stuff. I've heard of this, and I think you make a really good distinction between thinking and conceptualizing genetics as like a linear string of words and point taken on thinking about the 3D context. But I agree, like a really interesting, at least way that I thought about it when I was first reading about phase a couple of years ago and the technology more generally is you often hear computationally speaking, the genome assembly problem is like trying to assemble a jigsaw puzzle. And certain portions of the genome or certain types of variants 
are almost like trying to build a jigsaw puzzle of like totally clear blue sky. And so there's no context clues to say, okay, well, I've got this piece and this piece, so they go here. But your technology in a way is sort of like dotting clouds in the sky and giving you context clues. Is that fair? Maybe this is the analogy because I use it with people. Let's say you have a jigsaw puzzle and it's super hard and you don't know where the pieces go. But what if you knew the physical distance between every two pieces? Pieces, yeah. You can have a computer figure out how to put them together to make sense of it. The ones that are close together need to be close together. The ones that are far away need to be far away. And you can put it all together. And that's essentially what this technology does. So it's a very simple way to generate data that tells you how far away and how close every bit of the genome is. And it lets you reconstruct genomes in ways that was impossible with other methods. I think over the last couple of years, you've definitely seen mentions of the technology kind of blossom outside of, you mentioned the genome assembly problem. That's when I first started hearing the phrase platinum genome. And I was like, what is the delta from gold to platinum? And it was usually high C or proximity ligation technology. So maybe more recently then thinking about how you have tried to leverage, I know in conversations we've had, you've talked a lot about all the folks you employ on the AI side, all the computational work that you've done, the fact that you have a unique almost data type in the space and how those things fit together. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about taking it from the genome assembly conversation out and positioning it in totally new ways. So the theme of this whole conversation is going to be capturing information. And so when we started, we talked about capturing how a genome folds in three dimensions. And that's a very complex problem. It's dynamic, it's changing. And then we went down to saying, okay, let's take it one step below that and say, how is the genome arranged in two dimensions? How are all the pieces lined up on these chromosomes? But now let's take that down even further. And what's cool is we're gonna take this information, we're gonna solve a simpler problem but that simpler problem from a computational perspective is actually a much more useful problem on like the medical front <laughs> and like for human applicability. And here's the problem. If you look at oncology, for example, you look at like cancer research, cancer biology, the workhorse of oncology, if you look at the last 70 years or whatnot, has been looking at chromosome rearrangements, chromosome structure. Most people in the audience have probably seen these things called karyotypes, where you see chromosomes lined up. They're often looking like little butterflies or like little worms. And that's a karyotype. And if you look at a karyotype under a microscope, and if it came from a cancer sample, you're likely to detect, to see rearrangements, chromosomes fusing together or big chunks of them switching places, that kind of stuff. And that space that's called cytogenetics, that has been basically the workhorse of oncology genetics for the last 50 years or so. You think of things like Philadelphia chromosomes, gene fusions, those are products of rearrangements. So we're used to like sequencing genomes of cancer is super cool and super important, rapidly growing. But we forget that historically, most of the diagnostics, most of the drugs in the cancer space came from looking not at letters changing in the genome, but from chromosomes rearranging and forming crazy new chimera genes and things like that. And so what if you could have a rapid way to measure if a chromosome rearranged? How would you normally do it? Normally you have to do it by cytogenetics. You have to look under a microscope to try to detect somebody who's trained to look at these things. And they go, okay, it looks like that chromosome and that chromosome, like half of them switch places. But what if you knew 
how far away every part of the genome was from every other part of the genome. That would immediately tell you if something flipped around or switched places. So that same jigsaw puzzle analogy, where you have the distance between every two pairs of pieces, and you lay them out. But now you have another puzzle, and in this puzzle, two pieces swap places. You can immediately see that, because you know that, oh, these are two way closer than they're supposed to be, and these are way further than they're supposed to be. And so being able to rapidly measure in a very sort of inexpensive and scalable way genomic rearrangements is a huge application of this technology. Being able to assemble a genome de novo is great, but those tend to be more researchy kind of applications at this point. Cytogenetics has been around for 100 years, and it's actually suffering a little bit because it's almost like everyone else has gotten like some cool new technology, and the cytogenetics folks oftentimes feel like they're being left behind because they're still doing microscopy and that kind of thing. And so our goal was to take this tech and basically give a new tool to the cytogenetics folks to say, you can use this technology to power yourself to do what you're used to doing in a much better way, much more scalable, much more inexpensive. Like you can detect all these rearrangements that you're used to looking for in a way that's much better, much faster, much cheaper, etc. And so that's an example where assembling a genome de novo is like assembling an entire jigsaw puzzle de novo. Cytogenetics is a huge medical opportunity and application, but it doesn't need to reconstruct the entire genome. It's just looking for pieces that are out of place. So being able to take, reduce the complexity of the genome assembly problem down to just looking for rearrangements is simultaneously much easier technologically and much more valuable from a market perspective, from a human health perspective, it's much more practical of an application. And so that's really our focus now. So we're doing a ton of stuff in oncology. We're doing a ton of stuff inside of genetics. The idea is to bring this tool to be able to not assemble genomes necessarily, but to detect all these structural rearrangements that couldn't be detected by other means. I think a lot of listeners, this might be a surprise to some, maybe not, but to your point on certain groups of scientists, certain disciplines getting a supercharge with the advent and cost decline of sequencing. I mean, at this point, it's ubiquitous, easy to access. One of the cool things about this technology, IC and derivatives thereof, any short read sequencer, as they continue to come out and as they populate, is essentially or theoretically compatible with this method. So you think about friction to market adoption or distribution, the install base is already pretty vast. The other interesting thing about it, and I think this is sort of an artifact of the diagnostic industry, I think a lot of people will be familiar with the fact that we have things like liquid cancers and solid tumors. And one historical challenge, and I won't sort of make this pitch because I know it's an interesting thing that you guys are working on, but after a pathologist makes a diagnosis or looks at a tissue sample and does the work that any analytical lab would do, typically tissue is placed into what are called FFPE blocks or formalin fixation paraffin embedding, essentially a storage medium, because now we have a bunch of really large diagnostic labs that are doing next-gen sequencing, also looking for point mutations. So they need those samples. The problem is that process of storage is very degrading to DNA itself and fractures it and splinters it into millions of tiny pieces thus making it incompatible to, at least to my understanding, actual sort of native long read, either sequencing or mapping technologies. So you have a really interesting, what seems to me like kind of like a technological monopoly 
on this really large segment. So maybe you could sort of talk to that and kind of yes. how it aligns with biopharma. <laughs> exactly. So it might surprise people. Like I just said, like structural rearrangements are the workhorse of oncology going back 50 years. But at the same time, something like 90, 95% of all oncology samples cannot be tested for structural rearrangements. And that seems like a paradox. But just like you said, the reason is that almost every biopsy and other sort of non-liquid cancer sample is stored in this FFPE format. What it does is it's the equivalent, like they put it in formalin, which is like take, you know, like those mummy heads in a jar, like formaldehyde, like it's like that. You, you put your biopsy in that, it fixes it, it freezes everything in place, and then you put it in a wax block. And then later they can take thin sections and look under a microscope at like cell structure and other phenotypes. That's what it's for. So the pathologist can look at these samples. But that process kills all the cells and ruins the DNA. It just shreds it into tiny pieces, put all these chemical addicts on it. So all the like super cool new genomic tools, long read sequencing, optical mapping, all this kind of stuff, you can't do it on those samples because you can't extract a long DNA molecule. And so there's two and a half billion of these samples out there. And they're full of like fusions, drug targets, biomarkers, rearrangements, all sorts of crazy things, but nobody can look at them because <laughs> there's no technology that does it. And the beauty of this method is it's elegantly simple and it works on FFPEs. And so, again, not to be too pitchy, like, but essentially what we do is we take one or two FFPE slices and generate a karyotype from it. And it, it's on the Illumina platform. It can be sequenced with anything, but Illumina is the one we use most commonly because that's the cheapest and the most widely used everywhere. So there's a huge install base. There's a huge pool of samples out there already. Clinical trials, you have to save these samples for, I think, seven years by law. And so there's a massive opportunity. Right? There's this ocean of untapped clinical data out there. Pharma companies, they're sitting on... I don't know how many hundreds, thousands, biomarkers, gene fusions, new drug targets, you name it. And they have no way of getting in there because they're all trapped in FFPEs. And that's why we push this out. So when you say out there, for people who don't know, these things are sitting in just huge freezer cabinets between all the world's large pharma companies. And to your point, like that, even that Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end, where they're like moving the Ark into the giant warehouse. That's what I imagine FFPE warehouses are like. The idea, at least for a pharma company, is that you would be able to take what is essentially just static lying around, costing you money because you're having to cool it, and at least having the attempt at some new target, some new opportunity to develop a drug against. Is that right? I think one of the advantages of FFPEs is you don't have to cool it. They're just sitting oh, okay. at room 10. So that's part of why they save it that way. But one value is like, let's say you're trying to do a study and you're trying to look at response to a particular drug. You have to go and recruit a bunch of patients, which is super expensive. You have to recruit people for your study. But these FFPEs, they're archival. You already have them. <laughs> you can just go into the samples you've already done, like studies that you've already done, and pull out tons of information. The story is new drugs, old samples. You can drastically lower the costs of studies by opening up this vast archival ocean of samples from previous well-annotated studies. 
So it could be used both retrospectively. You can be used prospectively if you're going to do a new study, but your surgeons are all going to just hand out FFPEs. You can use it going forward. You can use it going back. You can use it to discover things that you have no other way of discovering because you will never be able to extract all these things out of FFPEs. And also, it's a way of proactively diagnosing for things. It's a way of discovering things that are locked away in these old samples, and it's also a way of diagnosing them going forward. So it creates both a retrospective opportunity and a prospective opportunity. So to play devil's advocate from the perspective of the pharma operator who's maybe going retrospectively through all these samples. So you mentioned, my first question was, okay, how well curated is the matched kind of phenotypic or clinical data about these folks? I mean, I know you could just have the Omic data. What does that look like? Everybody's trials are different. We have some projects that are going on that are super well annotated and some where people have no idea. In fact, the double-edged sword with a lot of the solid tumor stuff is that people don't know. They're like, do we care about structural rearrangements in this cancer type? We've never been able to measure it before. So there's not like in leukemia, for example, and blood cancer and liquid cancer, there is an enormous amount of information on structural variation. They know so much about the relevance of structural variation in those cancer types, but that's because you get blood, you can do normal karyotyping on it. You can do normal cytogenetics on it. Solid tumors, that knowledge base doesn't exist because there's no way to process FFPEs cytogenetically. You can do next-gen sequencing, you can do Illumina sequencing that will find mutations, copy number changes, like if something's been deleted or something's been amplified, you can tell. But anything like um, inversion or balanced translocation or just complex rearrangements, you're just blind to. It's a lot of data to process. I know, I think I mentioned this earlier, but you've got a lot of folks doing AI work and you're working with a unique data type. So could you maybe kind of give us some perspective on what it's like to sort of be the broker of trying to like make a unique data type accessible, understandable, easy to kind of extract knowledge out of? I think, and maybe people can Google this, or maybe we can put the image up, but one of the actual images of what the IC sort of map looks like is really interesting. I'm scared to start pulling up slides because I'm not familiar (laughs) with the podcast, but we think about this quite a bit because again, as genomics people, we're used to like, dealing with complex data, collaborate. like everybody's used to kind of dealing with crazy genomics data and multiomics data. And But the average normal sided genomics person is used to looking at ISCN notation. And so the way we generally solve that problem is we keep the data kind of visual so it's easy to see for a person. They're plotted in these heat maps that if somebody goes on our website or one of my academic talks, they can see what it looks like. But you can see it with your eyes. You can point a finger and be like, I see there's a thing going on in this part of the genome. And also to translate that to terms that people are used to, which is either ISCN notation or coordinates. There's a standard vocabulary of how to describe structural rearrangements that's been worked out by cytogenetics folks over the last however many decades. What we do is we try to do the complex stuff kind of under the hood and then give them something that they're used to looking at. Be like, yes, we have all this information. I think one of the mistakes genomicists make when they go into the medical community is they swamp them with information that nobody knows what to do with. And so we try to solve that problem by basically doing the heavy-duty genomics work, the AI stuff, sort of under the hood, and then presenting people with information that's digestible, that they're used to seeing. Obviously, that's requested. (laughs) 
like, for folks who are not used to looking at like a table of 40,000 of variants of unknown significance. You're like, can you like not show me that? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's also just the cultural, it is interesting just because at least amongst sequencing, the way it's sort of stratified in the US is you have a lot of large volume sequencing being done in centralized labs, not like in Europe where the sequencing actually happens closer to the point of care. So to some extent, it's kind of pulled apart almost like the cultural, give me all the information, I want the data dump, I'm curious versus like, hey, I've got to treat this person. So there's sort of a culture clash. I mean, we're prepared for both eventualities. We build an extra layer kind of on top of our software to simplify things and to make it interpretable by folks who don't necessarily want to see everything. It's no extra work to show them what's upstream of that. Different people want different levels of information. Some people don't want the extra information. That's the other thing that's crazy for a scientist to deal with is like, hey, I found all this stuff in your sample and people go like, you need to like not tell me that. <laughs> like I have a DX that's looking at these specific events in the genome. Yes, no, tell me, is this happening? Is this happening? Is that... If there's like 10 other things going on, I don't want to know that because that creates all sorts of other problems. Because A, you don't know what to do with that information. And then B, like what happens if a person has a problem later and they go back and they're like, hey, you knew about that and didn't tell me. It's counterintuitive, but all these things exist. It's a pretty sophisticated problem to try to figure out what is the way to present the data in a way that everyone's going to like, because everyone wants something different. And we're doing it by talking to people and sort of trial and normal sort of product development type ways. But certainly some people want everything and some people want a tiny amount. I'm curious to maybe take us a little bit in a different direction, still talking about disease. I'm actually really curious to pick your brain about how these two topics kind of connect on the disease front, but taking it to something called the microbiome in another huge application area of the technology, both in research and in a clinical setting. Maybe before we take it there, and you probably have a bunch of great ways of describing it, but if someone were to return to that 3D kind of mental image of all the spaghetti bound up inside of a nucleus of a cell. I've always thought about the physical way that this technology works is it kind of pinches sections of DNA together and then snaps them apart. And then when you sequence it, you can say, hey, part A was bumped right up against part B. And that was not elegant at all. But I think it's a good thing to maybe imagine before talking about what a microbiome sample actually looks like. The way that the technology essentially works is exactly like you said. Another way I talk about it is imagine you have these cells and they have their spaghetti balls of DNA inside of them. And what you do is you basically treat them with essentially a molecular glue. It goes into the cells and the DNA is all balled up and it just glues everything together. So things that are next to each other are going to get glued together. And then you extract those little junctions and you sequence them. And that's how you know that this sequence and this sequence were next to each other because they were joined together. They were like glued together. It's called cross-linking is the technical term. And so you get all these little cross-linked junctions between DNA molecules and you can be like, that one and that one were touching each other while they were inside the cell. And that's the underpinning of the technology. The most commonly used kind of version of this tech in the academic space is called HiC. So it was originally developed to look at how a genome folds by counting how often all the parts of the genome are touching. But the idea is you're chemically linking them together, sequences together, and then you're sequencing those little pieces with just Illumina sequencing. And so in the context of the microbiome, so what is the microbiome? If I speak to a lay audience, I go like, you guys think of yourselves as human, but in fact, the majority of the cells in your body are not human cells. 
they're microbes. And if you count by like the number of genes, like microbial genes versus human genes in your body, like you're outnumbered by like a thousand to one. So you're basically just like a giant walking scaffold of microbes. And of course they affect your health in a million different ways. If you go, and it's not just your body, like if you go scoop a little piece of soil outside your house, there's going to be more microbes in there than all the humans who have ever lived. You go into the ocean, the ocean is microbe and virus soup, basically. There's viruses swimming everywhere in like incalculable numbers. So this microbial universe, we're in it. It's not like we just invented it. Like it's always been here. And so going back to my like capturing information is the goal of genomics. The information encoded in the microbial world is far beyond what we as human beings are capable of. And so how much information can we tease out of that? It's important for disease. When I talk to people, I go like, look, in the microbiome, microbial space, what is like the most important, most impactful therapeutic right now? And it's microbiota transplants. It's fecal microbiota transplants. There's this disease called colitis. It's very common in hospitals. You get hit with antibiotics and it kills off a bunch of like quote unquote good bacteria, which nobody knows what exactly what that means. And then there's a toxic bacteria called C. diff that kind of takes over and you can't kill it with antibiotics. You just keep hitting people over and over. And this thing, like it'll go away, it'll come back. It's basically something that sometimes is completely incurable. And the way you cure it with almost 90% effectiveness is you take poop from a healthy person and you put it into a sick person and it like magically cures people. And it's sort of like middle ages medicine. Like what if we could actually understand why that's happening and people are trying to figure it out, but it's not just that there's a million different elements to the microbial world and how it's interacting with us for health, for various industrial processes, for agriculture, for everything. And so the reason we kind of went off on this topic is that this technology of ours does something extremely unique in the microbiome space. And so going back to this gluing sequences inside of a cell metaphor. So let's say you have two cells and one of them belongs to species A and one of them belongs to species B. And if you just like extracted their DNA at the same time and sequenced it, they would be mixed together and you wouldn't know which part came from A, which part came from B. What if one of them had a virus that was floating around and you sequence the DNA? How would you know that the virus came from this cell or from that cell? You'd have no idea. But what if before you extracted that DNA, you glued them in place and you did this thing where you're sequencing the junctions between glued stuff. You wouldn't say, okay, these DNA sequences were all touching each other and these DNA sequences were all touching each other, but these weren't. And so you'd be able to take this alphabet soup of sequences and separate them apart. And if there was a virus, the virus would be touching genome A and not genome B. So you'd say the virus came out of genome A. Let's think about this microbiome situation. Let's say you have a sample that has a thousand different bacteria living in it at the same time. And there's like a hundred different phages, viruses, and there's a bunch of plasmids that are carrying antibiotic resistance. And they're all jumping around between different microbes. If you just sequence that, it's virtually impossible to reconstruct what's actually happening. But now let's say you glued all the little DNA molecules together in place before you broke the cells and extracted the DNA. 
you would be able to tell which pieces came out of the same cells. You'd be able to reconstruct genomes for microbes without having to culture them. You'd be able to assign which viruses are infecting which microbes. You'd be able to figure out which antibiotic-resistant plasmids are infecting which microbes. If one microbe has five different antibiotic resistance genes in it, you'd be able to see that. If a phage, if a virus is infecting five different microbes, you'd be able to see that. And so that's basically the underpinning of what we do in the microbiome space. It's a way of discovering hundreds, thousands of new bacterial genomes that you can't discover because they don't grow, but you can't culture them. And so it's the ability to extract massive amounts of information from microbiome samples that you just can't do with other technologies. You're actually pulling all the genomes apart and you're discovered, like you're like, here's a new organism. Every sample we process is full of genomes that nobody's ever seen before. The other aspect is the viral angle. So the ability to figure out who the viruses are and who they're infecting without culturing stuff is incredibly powerful. We recently did this study. Well, we didn't do the study. We just sort of looked at other people's studies. There are 10 to the 31th power different viruses in the world. They outnumber everything else by orders of magnitude. But they're all infecting something. They can't live on their own. So they have to have hosts. And if you go like, well, how many virus host matchups do we know about? The number, once you kind of go through all the repositories and dereplicate them, so you're just looking at unique ones, how many unique ones? It's only a couple of hundred. Like we only know like something like 300, 500 or so different virus host pairs. And the reason is that the only way to isolate a virus from the environment is to find the host, grow it, and figure out that this virus infects this host. So everything is super culture dependent. And our method isn't. Our method comes, in t it's like you just take a piece of soil, a piece of poop, whatever, and you sequence it with this method, and you can simultaneously discover tons of new bacteria, tons of new viruses, and figure out who the viruses are infecting. And because we've been doing this for years with lots of customers and our own collaborations, internal work, we're essentially now sitting on the world's largest repository of virus host information. Because we're not dependent on culture methods, we have thousands of these things. So basically, I don't want to like make this too much of a sales pitch, but effectively, it all goes back to this capturing of this valuable information. Like, what if we could figure out why does a virus pick this organism to go after? And how do we figure that out? Well, the way to figure it out is isolate as many viruses and hosts as you possibly can and train AI models to learn what are the sequence determinants that this virus says, I'm going to go after this microbe and not after I this see. microbe. I really like the way you conceptualize it as information. It's just a totally new perspective on a problem that clearly has been, frankly, sounds like pretty artisanal with having to culture and grow and manually cross things and see what works and what doesn't. From the perspective of taking it back to thinking about it in, with computation and AI, I know that historically when you've done a metagenomic sample or a microbiome sample, one way is to read the DNA, align it to the reference of a known species that you think is in that sample, and then you can kind of bin it. And so you know which reads are coming from that organism. So you do have some ability to do that, but there clearly must be like a hard limit that's just kept this thing from showing up in databases. Like if the sample is too complex or the genomes are new. And to your point, if it's a species you've not seen or you didn't know was infected with a virus, you couldn't see that either. Do you have any ideas about sort of where and when and how some of this stuff might translate into 
not necessarily like a consumer test, but I think a lot of people are familiar with different types of genetic tests, whether it's for like hereditary disease predisposition or tumor sequencing or something like that. I know a lot of people are conscious of what they put in their body. They've heard of things like, well, what is a probiotic? Like it's not outside of the lingua franca, as it were, but this can supercharge it, at least in terms of the way we understand these types of problems. How do you think about it showing up where people might start seeing it a little more? You sort of hit the nail on the head. The way you do microbiome work now is you sequence something and then you map it and you hope that your reads map to a reference, something that already has been sequenced before. But as we all know, these are wild environmental samples. Like no genome is the same. Your bacteria are different than the reference bacteria. There's going to be a lot of them that are the same, but they'll be different strains. They have their own mutations. So just being able to say we have this much of a bacteria of this type and this much of this bacteria of this type, that only gets you partway there. And it's hard to really know what to test for because you and I, our human genomes will be a fraction of a percent different. But my microbiome and your microbiome might be 80% different or more. And so things are so diverse, we can look for patterns that are obvious. You can be like, this person just got hit by antibiotics, their microbial complexity is super squished because most of the microbes are dead and this one hasn't been. But if when you have something subtle, it's very hard to tell differences between like particular conditions, between healthy and unhealthy individuals, etc. simply because just normal variation is huge. You can have two healthy people that have very different microbiomes. And so like, how do you know this person is... Well, all I'm like saying what is, is the that, baseline, essentially? Yeah. What is the baseline? Like, there's a lot of efforts looking for the healthy microbiome. And there are some markers that could be used to sort of steer the conversation. But we're so far away from knowing really what the drivers are in most of these cases that it's very hard. And that's why I come back to this information stuff is because the way to combat that is by getting better information is not just by saying 30% of your microbiome is bifidobacteria or something. And you're like, well, how many species is that? What are the strains? What mutations are they carrying? Do they have viruses in them? Do they have antibiotic resistance? We don't have that information now. All you're doing is you're mapping your data against a bunch of known genomes and saying, like, relatively speaking, how much is there? But what about all the reads that didn't map to anything? <laughs> you throw them away. I mean, there's multiple layers of bias to it, I would think, in the sense that, to your point, one part of it is we can only travel in areas where we've traveled before. You're losing the ability to make de novo discovery. That's one piece of it. Two, the bias that comes with like the time point. I mean, when I think about the fact that our hereditary genomes are highly conserved, so if I get a gene panel now versus a year from now, it's not going to be different versus this is where longitudinal data, especially in response to therapy, has a lot of analogies to like how we treat cancers, for example. You're exerting a selection pressure on a population within your body, whether it's the microbiome or it's a tumor that is going totally rogue. I'm curious to see what happens when we have the infrastructure to start getting better at collecting longitudinal patient samples and also having a good perspective on the matched clinical data. How is this person faring or I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. Maybe the way of thinking about it is like the problem space is much more complex in that area because you're not just looking at one person's like mutations. You're looking at mixes of unknown unknowns and there's just so many more variables. And so you really need to 
drill down and expand the amount of information you have in these communities to try to capture them. Because you might be looking for obvious swings in abundance, but you're missing the fact that, like, what are the mutations all these bugs are carrying? And so you might not be able to detect and diagnose and to identify actionable things unless you really see their genomes, unless you see, like, the viral fraction. What's that doing? We've been ignoring it for the last however many years. And so that's really the idea is just shine a light on this quote-unquote dark matter of the microbiome, discover as many new genomes as we can, make it standard that we're looking at genomes and not just at these kind of bulk classifications of microbes, figure out who all the viruses are infecting. You can imagine developing phage therapies against existing and novel microbes using this information. So just like the opportunities are massive and what we need to do is really just be armed with better information. And that's sort of what we've built. Well, maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but just quickly, because I know that a lot of therapeutics companies use viruses as vectors, as like methods to deliver drugs to the body. Is there any relevancy here to something like that, whether it's like quality control or efficacy? Oh, exactly. Let's say you could figure out what sequences does a virus use to choose who its host is going to be. Then when you have a host trying to do something with you, trying to infect it, you're trying to kill it, maybe a new bio threat has shown up and you've never seen it before, you can immediately make a phage to go after it. You can make new therapies like phage cocktails. They've been used for like a century in different places, but it's a hot topic now because it helps you fight antibiotic resistant bacteria. And so you can make new therapeutics if you know how to design a virus to go after a particular microbe or just natural ones, not even design them, but just say like, we know what the natural host range of these viruses is. So if I'm trying to eliminate particular bacteria, I know what to use. And so that's a really hot area of development right now. I think it's going to be super powerful. And I think it's going to solve a lot of problems that are difficult to solve with current methods. I hate to put you on the spot, but if you had to think about the context of, let's say by the end of the decade, and follow a couple things, I guess, to their logical conclusion by then. Feel free to disagree. But one, I think continued sort of sustained decline in sequencing cost and much higher capacity. The methodology that you have is already very inexpensive, but a much broader implementation on it, both in cancer and oncology and also in microbial genetics. If you had to think about something that you would love to see come to fruition in each of those areas in the next two years, what would those things look like? Well, I think that I mean, continuously decreasing the cost of sequencing, of course. I think the continuous improvement in the quality of genetic information that everybody has access to, that's what we see in the trajectory. Like we're going from low information states to high information states, continuing that. I think educating the public about genetics and genomics so that they understand what's going on and they understand the power of it and they're not afraid of it, like we're seeing with all this like COVID stuff. I think that's an area that really sometimes it's easy to forget about. If we just think about like sort of technological advancements, well, we can keep doing technological advancements, but the public has to appreciate them and understand. And so I'd love to see new technology, sequencing costs go down, better analytical tools. We need to have more education in the graduate schools, et cetera, to train molecular biologists in computational techniques. That's a known problem. But beyond that, I think we have to do better outreach to the wider world as to what this is and why we're doing it and what the benefits to them are so they're not scared of technology. With the technology that you're bringing to bear specifically in those spaces, what's something that you kind of hope to achieve in both oncology and in the microbial world? Because I think we've talked about some of the application areas, 
But obviously, I think one exciting possibility for me, if I had to sort of answer it or think about it, would be the potential to keep discovering drugs for solid tumors that would be great if they were just relevant from liquid and we could pull them over and start using them for solid. But just the idea of new drugs in that space. On the oncology space, I just think, I mean, this is a bulk statement, but I think we will discover new drugs, new drug targets. I don't know how many. There will be a slew of new diagnostics and companion diagnostics that come out of this. It's just going to be a byproduct of improving this information. I don't know what we'll discover along the way, but if we look at the history of it, we know that if we find more of these kind of structural rearrangements and we have a fast way of doing it, we will find new drugs. That's been well established. And so project that forward. I think there's a giant well of new therapeutics and new diagnostics within that. And the microbiome thing is not that different. I think if we discover more microbial genomes, more viruses, we will be able to turn them into new diagnostics, new drugs. We will be able to screen people for specific conditions. We will be able to detect outbreaks before they happen. We'll be able to do all sorts of surveillance and things like that. It's all a byproduct of new tools that exploit new information sources and improve our ability to innovate on top of them. The last thing I'll ask is for people who, and I liked your answer that you mentioned about the educational or the importance of getting some of this stuff out there. Where can people go who are interested to learn more about phase, what you're doing, kind of the underlying technology? You probably have some talks on YouTube, maybe stuff like that. Follow us on Twitter at Phase Genomics. Follow us on YouTube. Smash that subscribe button. We have a few videos. Go to our website, phasegenomics.com. The usual stuff, LinkedIn. Good deal. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Ivan. I appreciate you for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.